I want us to uh, finish this statement with me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's right. How many of you uh, grew up learning this? All right. Uh, this is something that, that maybe we've taught our kids. How many taught our kids this, this little adage? No, you grew up learning it, but you didn't teach it, huh? You didn't believe it, did you? <laughs> no, uh, a lot of times we like to teach this because uh, we know that our kids and, and us uh, sometimes have people that we come in contact that say very harsh things. And, and so we like to repeat this because we want to ignore what they say, but we often can't ignore the fact that it does hurt sometimes. Uh, I remember in uh, fourth and fifth grade having to say this uh, adage quite a bit. Uh, I have no idea who taught it to me. I don't know if it was my mom or if it was my mom shaking her head. No, it was not me. Uh, it was probably uh, my babysitter, I'm assuming. So, uh, But uh, someone taught it to me, and, and uh, there was a kid in my class named DJ, uh, and DJ for some reason decided I was going to be the guy that he picked on, and that would have been all good and well, except for DJ was one of the popular kids in school. And so uh, when DJ started to do this, uh, so did a bunch of others. And so I had to constantly tell myself, ignore them, uh, sticks and stones, words don't hurt. But we do know that they do hurt. And especially when uh, we are closer to someone, their words sometimes can hurt us uh, even more. Uh, words, uh, I believe, have power. Uh, and depending on who's saying them and how they say them and, how, and what words they use, uh, it can inspire people to greatness. Uh, we've all heard different uh, sayings along the way uh, that kind of help us with this, right? We've heard people inspire people to greatness. Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. You know, we, we hear words like, I have a dream. That one day my four kids will grow up in a country where they'll not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the contents of their character. Uh, we hear words like, I, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and other things. Not because it's easy, but because it's tough. And that inspires people. Uh, we hear words like, uh, the only thing you have to fear is... For yourself. We, we hear words that inspired people to do great things. But we also know that words can inspire us to do evil things as well, can it not? Uh, we, not in our, necessarily in our country, but we, ha we hear about this guy uh, from Germany who had a great oratory skills. And, and the words that he used inspired his nation to, to come out of a depression of their own and, and to uh, start to kill lots and lots of people. And his name was Adolf Hitler. He used words to inspire people to cheer for the atrocities that he was uh, uh, promoting. All right, words have power. They inspire us and they inspire us to do both greatness and evil. All right, James, I think, has something to say about the words we choose to use. And so uh, we want to kind of talk about that today. We're in this series that we've called uh, Rooted, and we're looking at uh, these passages in James where uh, James is trying to tell us what a mature Christian looks like. Uh, and he gives us a bunch of different reasons. And so today we're going to look in James chapter 3. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, we'd encourage you to turn to, to there with us. Uh, we are going to be uh, reading from here and seeing what he has to say a mature Christian looks like. And we're going to use the uh, first verse to kind of set this up for us. So here's what he says. Now many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know 
that we who teach will be judged more strictly. He opens up his, uh, this chapter with a warning, and the warning is, not many should be teachers, and there was a great sigh of relief amongst everybody, right? right how many of you are like, yes, the Bible proves I don't have to teach? Yeah, some are celebrating. All right, uh, so uh, we can take this verse to mean that, but I think we have to also stop for a moment and realize some things that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, okay? So let's just talk through and make sure that you've been paying attention, make sure I've got this across so far. Uh, James is of what ethnicity? Oh, I failed. He's a Jew. Thank you, Ken. All right, James is a Jew, and he's writing to a certain group of Christians that were also Jews, okay? They were Jewish Christians. And so uh, when he says something like this, or pretty much his entire book, uh, we have to sometimes put on our Jewish thinking caps to understand what he is saying. So uh, let's do that for a moment and look at the first century world, and especially the Jewish idea of who teachers were. Uh, Teachers in the first century were very... uh, honored. They, were, they received the greatest honor of, of everybody in the, in the world besides maybe the Caesar and, and the government officials. They were a very high position. Right? They came with great dignity and, uh, and acclaim. And, and so lots of people wanted to be teachers because they were regarded with great respect. And, and that was throughout the Roman world, okay? Not just in Judea but throughout the entire Roman world. But within the Jewish culture, this was multiplied uh, exponentially to how much honor uh, their, their teachers were given. Uh, teachers in the Jewish world were given the name of rabbi, and rabbi means my great one. All right, so you're going around and you're hearing a bunch of people say, my great one, my great one, my great one. Who wouldn't want to be called that? All right. And so these rabbis, they were taught, uh, the Jewish people were taught that they were to be given the utmost respect over anyone else. All right. And so imagine with me, uh, there was a raid on your town and your parents were captured by the raiders and a rabbi was captured as well. All right. When you went to go ransom them to bring them back, you had to first ransom your rabbi before you could ransom your parents. All right? That is the great honor that rabbis were given. And so uh, with that in regards, a lot of people in the Jewish world especially desired to be teachers. All right? It was something that, that was the highest goal that, that they wanted. All right? That is not how our culture is, is it? All right? Our culture, we, we seem to be lacking in teachers. Sorry, my mic is giving me all kinds of fits this morning. All right, we, we, we have a great lacking in this in a lot of different ways. And so it's a completely different cultural situation. For them, everyone wanted to be teacher. And James says, hey, that doesn't need to be the case. Uh, another author in the New Testament wrote to Jewish Christians as well, and this is what he says in Hebrews 5.12. He says, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God. It's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. And so the author of Hebrews, talking to Jewish Christians as well, says you guys should be teachers, but your maturity level is, is lacking. All right, and so there's, there's this thing within Christianity that we should be maturing to a point where we can teach if we are called upon it. 
And I think what James is warning here isn't necessarily that we shouldn't all be teachers. Rather, we sh- he's warning don't strive for that position. And there's, there's a reason why that should be. Here, we'll talk about it in a second. All right, so James, I think, is warning that, that we need to first check our attitudes. Why do we desire this position? Why do we seek to be teachers? And he says, if you want to be a teacher, you need to check your attitude on that because it shouldn't be something all of us should be desiring. Uh, That's one thing. The second thing with this passage regarding teachers is that James kind of gives a warning, right? You shouldn't be a teacher because there's a stricter judgment in store for those who are teachers. All right? Why is this? Again, let's, let's have our Jewish thinking caps as we're thinking about this, okay? Uh, in the first century world, especially in the Jewish world, teachers were expected to shape their students to be more or less a reflection of, them, of themselves. All right? So when students came to them, they didn't come into a classroom and sit in rows. Rather, they came and they followed the teacher everywhere he went, Jesus, when he calls upon the 12 disciples, what do they do? They leave family behind. They follow Jesus. They listen to his teaching, and they see how they live. And that was normal. Jesus wasn't doing something profound that no one else in in that world had ever done before. No, that is how they were taught. If you were to follow a rabbi, a teacher, you would follow him, see where he eats, see, listen to his conversations, uh, not just what he's speaking to people, but when he's, when he's doing life with people. And you learn by that, and you ended up being shaped into his image. And for Christians, as teachers, our goal is to not shape you into our image, but Jesus, the image of Jesus. And so for Christian teachers, there is a warning because there's a stricter judgment. Because who you shape your students into determines a lot of, of who you are. And so as Christian teachers, we should be not shaping them into us, but into Christ. And so that means when we teach, it's not just the words we use, but how we live our life as well. And that is a high calling. And so James is warning, if you desire this position, understand that there is going to be a strict judgment. God's going to look at your life, and he's going to look at how you teach, and the words you use, and everything, everything along the way, and how they turn out, and how they are shaped, and that is going to be your judgments. And so we shouldn't, you know what, we shouldn't strive for this position. Not many of us, he says, because it's hard. Right, and so that's, that's what I think James is saying here. Not that we shouldn't have teachers. Uh, not that you, uh, this um, is a, an escape verse saying, oh, you want me to teach? No, James tells me I don't have to. All right, that, that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying uh, to be careful when you get into that position. All right, so uh, from here, James is going to, to kind of shift. All right, and, and so we wanted to open this verse up because uh, I, while it's a shift, I think it's not that big of a shift because when he's thinking about teachers and when he's talking about them, he understands that teachers teach by the words they use. All right, and so uh, James is going to, to shift to this idea of how we as Christians Uh, use our words, and so we need to be careful uh, with them. This is what he says, starting in verse 2. James says, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is uh, never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. 
And so what James does is he turns us to this idea of, of stumbling, and he says we all stumble, and this should be encouragement to us, okay? Because James isn't saying you all stumble, all right? He says we, myself included, we all stumble, and he, we have an idea uh, of someone who trips but is able to catch themselves uh, if need be to correct it, not necessarily falling flat on their face. And so this idea of stumbling, and we all have issues with sin and deal with it. And the thing that he wants to particularly talk about is the words we use. And he says, if you do not stumble in the things that you say, you are able to control the whole body. All right, so, so this uh, sign of a mature Krishna, of, of what it means to be in Christ and reflecting Him, goes to the aspects of the things that we say. And when He says that, we're left with this question, okay, what do we say then? Well, how are we supposed to speak? And the answer is, good question. You know, because James doesn't really answer that right here. He doesn't say, yeah, okay, when, when I'm talking about that, I'm saying don't say cuss words. I'm not saying, and it doesn't say you need to, you need to uh, have the right attitudes and the right tonage or anything like that. He just says, be careful in what you speak. And so we, we, we're left with this very, I don't know. Right? And so we're going to kind of read through the rest of this passage and kind of see some things that he's hinting about. Because I think the rest of this passage, he's going to be talking about uh, this idea of what we say and how we need to be careful. And so uh, he's going to do it in a very unique way. He's going to use uh, examples. All right? Every one of these things, he, again, James isn't a, a deep theology book where you have to like, really think about what he has to say. He's more of a practical theology. And so he says, you need to be careful in what you say. That's the deepest he gets. And then he goes into, okay, here's our examples. All right? And this is, this is how we can learn from it. So here's what he says, starting in verse 3. He says, whatever we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal in verse 4, or take the example of, uh, of ships. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder uh, wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. And so uh, he's going to use two examples. And the examples that James uses in this entire section are examples that anyone can get, right? We don't have to uh, be first century Jews to understand these examples. All right, one uh, is the example of horses. All right, horses are these large animals, right? All right, they are these very important animals in the first century, especially when it came to warfare, because horses gave you a great advantage. If you were fighting someone on foot, having being on horseback was awesome. But no matter how many horses you had in your army, if you were unable to control them, you would have, they would be useless, Right, and so what do we use to control horses? And he says it's this little bit that we put in their mouth. We strap it to, to, to some leather, and we're able to control the horse, whether he goes fast, whether he stops, whether he turns right or left. And this little piece of metal, compared to the enormity of this animal, is insignificant, but it has great power. And the points that he's going to use here in these first two examples is that the tongue has great power, even though it seems insignificant. Uh, the second example he gives is that of a ship. Uh, and, and ships are these great feats of engineering in that time period. It allowed them to traverse great stretches of water. You could travel uh, 
throughout the Mediterranean Sea on these, on these uh, instruments. Uh, and, and they were used to power the wind, uh, to move them. Right? But just having the power of wind isn't enough because with your sails, you're not necessarily able to completely control the ship and where it's going. The only way you can control a ship is with a rudder. And if I showed you a big drawing of these boats, the rudder would be very insignificant and, and not necessarily something we always point to as being one of the most important pieces of the ship. But without it, they could not go left or right. They would just go where the wind tossed them. If the wind blew in that direction, that's where they would go. If the wind was blowing in that direction, that's where they would go. If it's in a, 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 a tornado, watch out, right? Because their ship would just be going like this. It would be dangerous. And so the rudder was important. And so like these, he says, the, the power of our speech steers our entire direction of life. And we have to understand this. It has great power. Even though it seems insignificant, uh, in the, when we look at the grand scheme of the body, it is one of the most important pieces. One thing that I found in my life is the words that I use and they kind of affect my emotion. If I'm negative, and I'm using negative words to talk to people, I find that I tend to just have a negative outlook in life in general. But when I choose to use positive words, and choose to encourage people around me, I find that my attitude towards life is one of positiveness. I, I look for the greater good in things. And I think this is the power that he's talking about, that when we use words in certain ways and with certain attitudes, then it causes a power within us to, to cause us to have those type of moods. And so we should be uh, recognizing that and should be recognizing that our words and how we use them and the tone and inflections, they have great power over the direction our life will take. And so we need to be aware of that. All right, so moving on, uh, the second part of verse 5, he, he turns to another example, also talking about the power of the tongue, but in a different way. This is what he says. Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is set on fire by itself on fire by hell. All right, and so uh, we, we go from this idea of control, right? All right, the tongue has the power to control our lives all right, to, the, to the way that the, the, it has the power to uh, destroy lives. And we see this, right? All right? We see it when parents belittle their kids to the point that they break their kids. And the issues that result from that as they grow up into adulthood. We see it in the way that, that husbands abuse their wives verbally. And the breakness, that brokenness that comes into them as a result of those things. Words can cause destruction. And the example that he gives is that of a forest fire. Uh, a couple of years before uh, I got here, the uh, youth group went up to NYR in Colorado. And, and that particular year, there was a forest fire going on. Uh, and, it, it, and they tell me that it got so close to the camp that they were afraid they were going to have to evacuate the camp. But luckily, they didn't have to. Forest fires are devastating. They don't really affect us here, all right, but they do affect us in other parts of this country, and we see that. 
Uh, one of the greatest fires took place in, in California in 2003. Uh, it was called the Cedar Fire, uh, and it raged from October 25th to November 4th, and it destroyed 280,000 acres of land, 2,000 homes, and killed 15 people. Uh, it was one of the most devastating ones. And, and do you know how it started? It didn't start by a bonfire. Right? It wasn't someone was like, hey, let's just burn it all to the ground, okay? That's not what happened. It started when a guy got lost, and he couldn't find his way. And he was trying to signal someone to show them where he was at. And so he started a small fire, hoping the smoke could be seen. And the fire just got out of hand and destroyed lots of lots of property. Right? That's how the tongue is. It may be small. But we can easily lose control of the things that we're saying, and they can cause great destruction. So we need to uh, not only recognize that it has power over our lives, it has power uh, in destroying other things as well. And so we need to have control of it in this way. Uh, verse 8 it says, uh, continuing on verse 7, he says, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures have been tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no man... be uh, no human being can tame this tongue. All right? It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So he goes on from uh, this idea of it has power to this idea that it has destruction. And he's going to this new idea. And it's the idea that, of how we can tame it. And he has in the back of his mind Genesis chapter 1. Right In Genesis 1, God creates everything. He gets to about verse 26, and he says, I want to create mankind, and he, and he does, and he creates him in his image, and then he says, okay, man, now you have a dominion over the earth, all right? Subdue it, I believe, is what the Genesis writer says, and so with that in mind, he says, listen, we have tamed all kinds of animals, and we see that today, right? We have tamed all kinds of animals, all right? But the tongue, when compared to taming things, I." Taming animals is easy, right? And if you've ever had a dog, a brand new puppy, and you try to teach it how to go potty in the right spot, you know it's not always easy, is it? All right, and so we, if that, it was hard to struggle with, depending on the type of dog, uh, to get them to potty in the right spot, how much harder is it to tame the tongue? All right, and so, and so what James is saying is it requires a lot of concentration, you know, we have to think before we speak. We, we have to put effort and thought into the words we're using and how are they going to affect not only our lives, but the lives of other people. And he gets to the point where James says, you know, it, it's impossible. It can't be done. Right? But it takes that time and effort to do this, and even then, it's hard. All right, so we have these examples up to here, and he's going to give us one more example, uh, starting in verse um, 9. He says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. And out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. And so he's been building this case that, that the tongue has power over your life, that the tongue can cause destruction in other people's lives, that it is something that is very hard to control. And then he says, here's an oxymoron for you. And he has in the back of his mind this Genesis 1 idea that God created us in his image. And he says, listen, my brothers and sisters, we praise God 
And we use our mouth to do it. We use our tongue to, to spit out words of praise and hallelujah and amens to God. And then we turn around and we curse each other. And he says, they, human beings are created in God's image. Why are we cursing them? This idea of image is, is a powerful one. Right? I, the way I, I, I recently taught it to my daughter was, was this idea of a picture. My, my, my wife loves pictures, and so we go to, to J.C. Penney Portrait Studios about uh, too many times a year, and, and we go and we get pictures of our kids, uh, and, and we put them up around the house. Right? And so when I look at those pictures, I have emotions, right? Man, my kids are beautiful. Man, I love my kids. Right? And I have those emotions, and it's not an emotion for the picture, right? It's an emotion for my kids themselves. I don't go up to that picture and say, you're the stupidest thing in the world. You're so ugly. I don't do that because they are a representation. It's an image of my child. And here we have human beings who are in the image of God. And when we praise God on Sunday morning and then walk out these doors and, and curse each other, that makes no sense. And James says, brothers and sisters, this should not be. He goes on uh, another example of this oxymoron, this, this does not make sense moment in the remaining verses. He says, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring. My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives? Can a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And he says, when you do this over here, you are like having a spring of water. And if you're wanting it to be fresh and refreshing and something that is soothing, then you cannot let saltiness come out of it. Because if you allow saltiness to come out of it, it ruins the whole thing. We have to control ourselves. The entire point that James has been coming for through this entire process is to bring to mind the sign of what a mature Christian looks like. And it is a Christian who is able to control themselves by the words that they use because the, the tongue has the power to steer your entire life. All right, a Christian has the power to cause destruction, but they shouldn't. You need to control what you say because you can cause harm to people. He says you need to control what you say because it's very hard and you need to work on it. Because eventually we get to this point and if we've not controlled ourselves, we become people who praise God and curse men. Who are made in God's image. And if we want to praise God to the fullest that we can, then we need to control what we say against people. Not just what we say to them face to face, but what we say to them when they're not listening. What we say about them when they're not around. And this is something that is difficult. It's something that, that, that I struggle with. You know, James at the very beginning says if anyone is able to do this, they are mature. They are perfect. So let us Christians 
be men and women of God who are striving to control everything that we say and every manner and every attitude and every tone and inflection that we use to cause people to come closer to Jesus rather than run away because of what we've done. Let us not cause destruction, but let us praise God and help men with what we say. We pray with me. Heavenly Father, it can be very difficult at times to not be harsh, to not lose our temper, to not say things that cause destruction, not to not have negative attitudes and, and use our words to, to encourage that. And Lord, we need your help in this. Lord, I pray in my own life that, that you will come in, that you will guide what I say and, and help me to, to think and process through everything that I'm about to say to, to, to cause people hurt. Help me to, to not hurt people, but to encourage them, to lift them up with what I say. I pray as we go out that, that this will be the thoughts of our minds and the, and the desires of our hearts, that we will be people who are bringing others closer to you because of the words we're using. Help us to be people that are speaking truth and love and help us to be people uh, that are desiring to show others you. I ask this in your name. Amen.